if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. If you follow this podcast, then you've been following my Protestant friend Ed as he considers Catholicism. We've discussed doctrine, liturgy, history, spirituality, all sorts of great stuff as he investigates and evaluates and considers whether he might convert and join the church or not. The jury is still out on that, so keep listening to follow his journey. But along the way, we decided to broaden the type of topics that we talk about. Because Catholicism is bigger than just theology, just history, or just ecclesiology. Catholicism is a, a culture, a, a whole civilization, and one that has lasted 20 centuries. And that stands in contrast to all the pop cultures that have well popped up over the millennia, lasting a few decades and then melting away like the dew on the morning grass. Now, a big part of Ed's and my friendship has been built around pop culture. We love music and movies and, well, we really like mystery novels. And so, over the last 20 years, we've spent countless hours just talking about them, just like we do on the podcast. And so, we thought that occasionally, we might record some conversations about Catholicism and pop culture to compare and contrast what we see and hear around us to the civilization that stretches back to the, well, to the days of the apostles. So, in these segments, we'll talk about music and movies and books that sustain the Catholic life and those that erode it. In this first installment of the series, we bantered about what American pop culture is, where it came from, and what has driven it, and what, if anything, it has to do with Catholicism. Welcome to Church Chats with Greg and Ed, where Greg and his Protestant friend Ed chat about the church. So, Ed, we've talked before about there's a sort of hierarchy of Catholicism, maybe, or Catholic things. Yeah. Maybe at the base level, there's the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Catholic Church, which encompasses the Catholic right. faith or embodies it or whatnot. But then there's Catholicism, which is kind of a bigger umbrella thing that involves the Catholic faith, involves the Catholic Church, but it also involves Catholic culture, Catholic civilization, Catholic history, right. Catholic art. Institutions. And, and, institutions yeah. and music and all the things that, you know, that Catholic it's a culture. It's a worldview and a culture. And that kind of prompted us to have some conversations about, you know, so many of our church chats are really kind of focused on Catholic doctrine and Catholic faith things, a little bit on the church. But I just thought it would be fun if we maybe started a new segment on the podcast where we occasionally talk about culture and reflected on maybe the contrasts between popular culture 
and Catholic culture and what you're encountering in Catholic culture mm-hmm. and maybe what, what lasts and doesn't last because Catholic culture is something that has 2,000 years of right. sort of not only history, but sort of weight and momentum behind it. Yep. And, and yet in any given generation, you have pop culture, which just is kind of whatever is by definition popular at that time and right. place. And so anyway, I, you and I were just talking before we started the recorder about where we really go with it. And we really don't have any kind of plan or right. script for this conversation, but I think we both we both love uh, music and movies, and we are both fascinated by pop culture and the pop culture we grew up in and, and, and live in, but also the contrasts of that with what we might call sort of Catholicism and Western right. civilization. And, and I, I think this is going to be a segment recurring on the podcast where we just kind of talk about music and movies and stuff that we think is interesting and how it fits into or doesn't fit into that larger n- narrative of. Catholic civilization. Well, when the first time I went to, uh, well, when I came to your class on Dante last fall, I had not been, I had been to Our Lady of the Lake Church for a wedding, I think, quite a while before. Uh, but I, but I, when I walked in, it was, it was different. I was not striding, tri, striding in triumphant as the, uh, the, uh, the Protestant who knew better. Uh, this time I was, uh, was with uh, fear and trembling. I'm like, okay, I don't know, I get a little trepidation here. This is, this is, um, what is this about? Like, what, you know, what am I doing? And one of the first things I noticed was that there was nothing cool about it. <laughs> and I spent a lot of my life trying to make church cool. Right. And what that, and by that, I meant, let's make it as much as we can to be like the pop culture things appealing to that, pop culture yes, reflecting that pop I, culture. that I love. So the music and the decorations and you know, all those things were, um, there was nothing timeless about it. It was like in that movie LA story with Steve Martin, where he says, Hey, careful. Some of those houses are 30 years old. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, and you know, you and I both came out of that world. Um, or maybe you're still in that world. Um, I, I've, I have fully left it. But when we worked in the evangelical megachurch world, um, and, you know, I've gotten into this new policy now where I'm less afraid just to name names, but right. <laughs> right. So back in the 80s and the 90s, it was Willow Creek Community yep. Church and the Willow Creek movement and all this stuff. And the whole idea was in order to share the gospel and, you know, grow the spread the kingdom and whatnot and do missions, we needed to reach seekers, you know, we need to reach unchurched people. And the way to do that, the whole theory was, was to make stuff cool. So everything from architecture, you designed the buildings to look like an office park or a shopping mall. And, you know, you and I used to go to those conferences and trainings down in, in Chicago at Willow Creek and Bill Hybels, who was the, you know, guru founding pastor head cheese there would say, Hey, uh, you know, unchurched people are comfortable in shopping malls. They like to go right. to shopping malls. So design your church to look like a shopping mall. So they put a food court in there and they put right. everything else. And it felt just like you were driving into a shopping mall. Right. And you go, well, that was the theory. If they like shopping malls, then they'll come here and they won't feel out of place. And then when they come in, you know, you want to dress like people would dress, you know, right. cool people dress somewhere else. So when they come in, they go, wow, look, everybody here is pretty cool and pretty hip. So right. again, you know, it was everything from the, the, the architecture to the de- 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 decor to the clothing, then the music, 
And then the band, and then the the worship space was the auditorium. Right. The auditorium looked like a theater because people like movie theaters or they like whatever. So you design it to look like movie theater seats and a stage and whatever. And then they come in and, you know, the, the band is like going to a secular, you know, band venue and you've got a giant screen that plays videos and then the guy who comes out and talks, it's like a TED Talk guy, and he's, you know, and he's hip, and he's got a, you know, hip jeans and a T-shirt, or whatever right. it is, right? The whole theory was that if you appealed or you reflected pop culture, that that would win you the opportunity to share with pop culture people right. Jesus. The issue is, well, there's a whole bunch of issues with it, but one of them is, you know, if that's going to be your argument, then it seems to me the burden of proof is on you to show that that succeeds. Right. And I think the question that I would ask after having spent 30 years in that world, in and out of that world in one form or another, did it, did it work? Yeah. Did in the end, between the late 80s and the early to mid-2000s, 2010s, did America become more Christian Right. Because most American churches jumped into embracing pop culture. Or did yeah. we actually lose two generations? It's an interesting thing to me. I, so I spent all this time trying very hard to, to make it be that way. Right? And I was in a, involved in a business group. And it was just business people. And I, at the time, I had a little private music teaching practice and whatever. And so I, was, I would go to this thing and try to promote myself. Right. And so it was people from all walks of life and uh, it was my turn to give a, a 10 minute talk, you know? And so I did a little survey and I said, do you go to church? And if you do, why do you go there? What is it you like about it? And here's the thing that, sh- that, that like shocked me, the younger people. And by that, I mean, say 30 and under 35 and under, uh, because I was born in, you know, when Danish modern furniture was popular. Um, <laughs> These people were, almost all of them were going to traditional services being offered at Protestant churches. You know, piano and organ, hymns, wearing a suit, all those things, uh, liturgy. All, and I, I, I was just shocked. And I thought, all that work, right. all that money. And what did I, what, you know, I, I spent all that effort. Did I, did the, did the world of Christendom get anything from my effort? Is it, you know. Right. I mean, I met my wife there. It was, that that's part good. was good. Yeah, you know? that's good. Um, that was, that was hard. I, th- I thought, no, oh, man, what did I, what did I just spend 25 years doing? You right. Know? Well, you know, and so that comes to this question about pop culture. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what pop culture is. Obviously it stands for popular culture. Right. We said a moment ago, it's, it's by definition, what's popular at a given time and place in history. But by definition, that's kind of ephemeral, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Not effeminate, necessarily. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but uh, ephemeral in the sense that it's passing. It, it comes and goes. So what's popular today, you know, fashions, right. 10 years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, they've come and gone. Yep. So popularity and then at a given time and place. So you say pop culture in right. the United States, what even what part of the United States, right? So, you know, and we can get into that in a minute, but, you know, like how fractured pop culture is even today uh, versus, you know, previous that now you have, you know, you have like five, six, eight, 10 different subcultures, major subcultures in America. Right. And so when you even say what's American pop culture, that depends on, well, is it urban? 
culture? Is it country Western, suburban culture? Right. Is it this? Is it that? Is it, you know, uh, so, so it's really hard to even figure out what pop culture is. It seems like a very fleeting, ephemeral, hard to grasp thing. It's, well, at its roots, I, I guess I'd have to say it's a popularity contest, mm -hmm. right? What the things that, that are brought before us and talked about as important are the things that the most people like. So, you know, you know, the, the idea of a politician who, who, uh, what does he stand for? Whatever you want him to stand for, because that's how he's going to get elected. Right. Yeah. And so, and so, and so it's that way, but like I, I would watch uh, over the year, I don't watch the awards shows anymore. Right. Uh, just, they're just, it's just empty. Right. And I watch and I, but I remember watching them, you know, 30 or 40 years ago and thinking, what? You're crazy. You're kidding me. How come so-and-so didn't win an award and then this person did? Right. You know? Well, right. So who's voted by the Academy or whatever? I mean, that's yeah. different than what sells. But, but let's back up a second about sells because I think there's a real um, interesting phenomenon that you and I have been talking about for years. And that is the pop culture of America between like the 1960s, late 50s, early 60s until... I don't know what, the night, maybe the late eighties, nineties. Yeah. And it was sort of the baby boom culture. Yep. And the baby boomers, <laughs> I don't want to say it, the baby boomers kind of broke the world in a lot of different <laughs> right. ways. Right. And kind of a sort of conceited, self-centered, yeah. narcissistic generation. But part of what gave the baby boomers so much power culturally, not only in the United States, but really around the world because it was kind of the time of the height of American influence or American yep. influence spreading around the world is exactly market forces, publishing forces. So you and I used to be part of a, a, a group of friends that would meet um, for a, a pint from time to right. time. And most of the guys at the table, excluding me, were musicians. Right. But we all loved to argue about music and bands and all this kind of stuff. And did, it was did, pretty. Did you go with us to the, to the Dylan exhibit at the. Oh, uh, I was. Yeah. Were you there? Organ I organized no, the that. Dylan trip. Because <laughs> there was, uh, there was, uh, cause that was part of the one divisions in the, you know, in the group that we used to get together with us, whether you were on team Bob Dylan or, right. or not team Bob. I Dylan. remember being a very much, uh, I'm feeling very alone in that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were kind of, yeah, I was, I was part of team Dylan, but right. So the thing is, is that we used to argue all the time about why it is that there was a, a period when certain musical artists in America, whether that was Elvis or Bob right. Dylan or the Beatles or any number of the hair bands or major right. classic rock bands could fill stadiums. Yep. And they sort of dominated the culture in a way that nobody can today. There's no artist today that can go right. fill stadiums right. six nights in a row the way right. some of those bands could in the 60s and the 70s. Right. Um, maybe into the early 80s, but really that was the tail end of it. But the 60s and the 70s, that was a thing. And part of the reason is, is that you had a giant marketing and sales structure in the publishing houses. Yeah. So whether it was, you know, the music industry had the music publishing houses, the record companies, and they had, they had the radio stations and the television stations, you know, you had FM radio. And so the, the record companies could pick artists, pick yep. the ones they wanted to put m enormous marketing 
muscle behind them, right. put them on FM radio, the select FM radio stations right. around the country. And essentially they were telling people, this is what you're supposed to like. Right. <laughs> right. And then they'd send those bands out on tour and everyone's like, well, this is the thing we're supposed to like because it's what plays on the radio. Right. And what broke that was the internet. Mm-hmm. Because people began to able to you able to um, what fracture it yeah and and break that up into ten thousand pieces so now people could listen to what they wanted to listen to and they didn't have to listen to what the music companies were were telling them to listen to and you ended up having then not only do you have you know hip hop music but you have like nineteen flavors of hip hop not only do you have country right. western you have nineteen kinds of country and western and they have all these fractional audiences. And so nobody really has that kind of marketing muscle. And I think where I'm going with all of this is when you talk about, when we talk about pop culture and the ability of something to be popular, part of it is what has been marketed and has the marketing muscle to sort of capture a culture Mm -hmm. uh, and build a culture around something. And I don't think, right, and and when we were living in that, it seemed wow, so powerful and inevitable. The Beatles, right? you know, right? right. I mean, yeah. uh, whatever, name your bands, you know, right. your big bands. It, it was like, it just, my goodness, this was world changing. Right. Now, you know, 50 years later, you go, eh, I'm not so sure it is. It was kind of a thing for a while, but right. it, it seems like something that has passed. But when you were in the midst of it, it was being sold to you so heavily, right. packaged so heavily. And it had the force of culture behind it. Uh, it looked like it was permanent and eternal. Well, you know, I got a chance to see Paul McCartney, one of my heroes, in Chicago. And uh, it was a wonderful concert. Loved it. Held my phone up. We were sitting in the, uh, in the uh, we were sitting so high up straight back that I, we were in the last row straight back up and I could touch the ceiling with my hand. <laughs> um, I put my thumb out, my hand out, and he fit inside my thumbnail. That's how far <laughs> back we were. And at the end of it, um, and these were, all, these were all songs that I just sort of knew by heart, right? And at the end, he said, well, this is wonderful. We've done, we, we, we had so many people who wanted to come and see us here that we added a couple shows, and this has been really great. And we got to go. We got someplace to be. And thank you all for coming. And we'll, let's, let's, this was so much fun. You know, we talked about making this the last tour, but let's not. Let's do this again. We'll see you all next time. And I thought, we're not going to see us all next time because, because the only reason we got in was because uh, our friend, uh, our mutual friend, Ed, his daughter who lived in Chicago, right. stood in line for hours to get a lottery ticket right. to get a chance to get in. And it's right. only because she scored a high numbering lottery, numbered lottery ticket, she was able to get four tickets. And I was only able to go because... Because I, I like a last minute cancellation or something. And then, and then I was able to go right. and I thought, I'm never going to get to see him again. I, right. I'd have to get online and be, be the, you know, be the first person within a quarter of a second to hit the ticket button when the, right. when the thing's gone. And I thought, well, this is all just, I don't know, this, it really bothered me. I thought yeah. I, I felt a connection to yep. Paul McCartney, but what is the nature of that connection? It's, it's, uh, well, it's a product. Yeah. Right. And you're a consumer. and. I think so much of American pop culture, music, fashion, movies, whatever, over the last 50 years has been a concerted, organized marketing effort to create a popular culture because, Mm -hmm. well, made money, made money for the artists, made money for the record companies, made money for everybody up and down the food chain, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Right. 
Um, it's not bad that people made money selling records. I good for right. them. But the point is, is that that popular culture is sort of a marker, a manufactured thing that that doesn't arise from the bottom. It's sort of imposed in some sense or organized down from the top. And I think, you know, probably every time and place throughout history, there have been, you know, whatever, you know, popular music. I mm-hmm. imagine if you went back a thousand years ago into some village and they right. had, you know, the village minstrel guy, right. you know, who sang right. drinking songs over ale and everybody right. sang the drinking songs. That's always been there. But I, I don't know that you had the kind of that we, we did in the mid 20th century onward with electronic media, radio, television, all the kind of globalist things, the ability to sort of manufacture right. a culture. Well, it was... And it's, it, was, it, was, it always felt kind of artificial to me. Yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the village guy in the little village someplace, that he, he was maybe creating just a little scene there amongst, you know, 1,500 people or something. Right. Uh, uh, it's spread out. Okay, so I'm a big Beach Boys, Beach Boys, uh, aholic. Oh yeah, and, and, you're Team and Beach Boys. I am Team not, Beach Boys, not Team Dylan. Uh, right, correct. And I feel when I listen to the music like I'm a part of it. It it uh, it speaks to me, right? And I'm just naive enough to want to belong to that sunny world of uh, right uh, of whatever. But that thing is so ephemeral to use the word. It's like it's like a it's like a mist. Just hovering yeah. over, it's hovering over, over the, the whole country. There's no, you, you can't reach out and touch any of it. And now I, you know, later in life, you know, I, I examine myself and I say, well, there were some, there were some good artists who, some good musicians, talented people who managed to make things that connected with people. Okay. So, but, so let's, is this a distinction, uh, the difference between pop culture and folk culture? Hmm. Okay. So if you travel around the world, there was always like folk culture. Um, and sometimes there's music associated with that. So something that I know you hate, I just, I know for a fact, cause I've heard you rave about how much you hate this. I actually like it. So I actually love bringing it up whenever I'm around you because I just love watching you squirm and grind your teeth. But uh, Celtic and Irish music, right? Oh, yes. And you just absolutely loathe that. And I love it. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, is if you go to Ireland today or whatever, there's still people who practice that old music. Right. You know, it's in, in its hundreds, in some cases, hundreds of years, years old or hundreds of forms that go back hundreds of years. If you go to Appalachia, down to the Smoky Mountains, you find people that are still practicing these kinds of folk right. music. And, and that's true, I mean, in Africa and Asia and, you know, all around the world. It seems to me the difference um, between folk culture and pop culture is that folk culture is something that is is kind of ingrained into a, a people and a place and mm-hmm. is transmitted from generation to generation. And it only sort of becomes part of the folk culture if it sort of tests, uh, passes the test of time. Right. And it's sort of sustainable over generations and centuries. And that's why, again, whether you're in Japan or Africa or India or wherever, there are these kinds of traditional folk cultures that, that go back hundreds or thousands of years, elements of, of them. Right. Whereas pop culture feels like this ephemeral manufactured artificial thing that's sort of shoved right. down from record companies and advertising agencies and, and whatnot. 
I, um, I very definitely want to be part of the surf culture. Uh, on the back of my Jeep, I have a, uh, you know, um, my license plate has the word surf in it. Uh, the, the tire cover on the back of my Jeep is, is surfboards, seven of them, right. and with palm trees bracketing them to look like the grill of a Jeep, right? Uh, I, I love that whole culture, okay? But that's uh, not everybody else does. In fact, I think you got away from it. I did. Almost so, as soon as you could. So I like right? to needle you that you have peer envy. Um, so your, your, great, your greatest desire is to, have, to live in Huntington Beach by the Huntington Beach Pier. That's like right. to you, like, you know, Brigadoon or Utopia I, I, well, or whatever. Well, I've, I've you know, changed. Right? Wait, 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 wait. I, we have to, we, I've altered this a little bit. Oh, no. Because um, uh, I, I, I actually grew up near the Huntington Beach well, Pier see, in Surf City, USA. Right. I went to high school just down the block from the Huntington Beach Pier. I, I grew up in that culture and I, I escaped. Right. And well, so I don't, it doesn't have the appeal to me. Speaking of ephemeral, I was in Huntington Beach a couple of years ago, early 2020. I went there to participate. I was going to say run, but that's not really accurate in the Huntington Beach Surf City Half Marathon, which uh, I didn't prepare very well for and ended up walking a long ways uh, of it. But anyway, it had changed quite a bit. It was the, the place had changed a lot. And I had to, in order for it to have the effect it had on me 25 years ago, when I first went there, right. I would have to really kind of squint a lot to make it, to make it look, you know, and, so now I've changed it down. Now I've moved down to uh, south of ways down to Laguna Beach. I still, I would, I would, you know, and then I would like to live there and just, I could just visit, well, look, you know, you know, and then I, you know, some people are saying it, this yeah. like, who cares? But look, I mean, part of it is, is that the ephemeral nature of, of times and places yes. and cultures, you know, one, one of the things I, you know, when I go back to visit California and visit old friends and relatives and all that, and, you know, um, I'll go back there and I'll slip into my Huntington Beach accent, you know, right. where I say like, and, uh, and you know, I right. kind of do that on the podcast anyway, right. but I mean, I sort of really slip into my little right. surfer draw when I get there. But part of it is, is that I remember what it was like when I was in high school and we were surfing yep. and all that. And it seems, you know, it's inevitable that time passes, cultures change, places change. But to bring this back to the Considering Catholicism podcast, bring that, I think part of Catholicism is finding those things that are not ephemeral, but in some sense are eternal. Right. What are those things and how do we build a culture and a civilization around things that, are, that sustain and last and, and become meaningful? Because there are places that you can go in the world where you go, this is, you know, for thousands of years or hundreds of years, this is still meaningful. And I guess the whole point of, if you've been stuck with us this long on this episode, right. you know, the whole point of all of our diatribes about the Beach Boys and, you know, Paul McCartney and Dylan and surfing and all that is that so much of that uh, was an ephemeral thing of the baby boomers. I don't know that 20 years from now or 50 years from now or 100 years from now, anybody will care about any of that. But I do know that there's places I can go around the world where things matter still hundred, you know, centuries and centuries right. and centuries later. And it seems to me that we want to invest in and build cultural elements, art, music, right. civilization, patterns and ways of life that are sustainable over the long haul and that tap into those right. longer term meaningful values. I totally agree. I, it's, it's a thing that later in life now, 
uh, as I sit around on my Danish modern furniture in, in my house. Uh, <laughs> You're right. It's like, it's not like, you didn't get it from Ikea, did you? No, no, no. We, we, I think that's pretty, I'm pretty sure that's ephemeral. No, we've, we have a bunch, we have a bunch of Haywood Wakefield oh, furniture, which also is. Also like the real thing. The real actual. Not yeah, flat yeah, yeah. pack Ikea stuff right, that right. will, if it comes today and will be gone tomorrow. <laughs> that's right. Which, which requires Pass. marriage counseling to assemble. <laughs> Passes um, like the grass of the field. Two thoughts about that. What is it that you talk in the opening of the podcast about good and true and beautiful? Right. If you ache for these things. And I think I do. We, we talked about offline a couple of weeks ago when you said, hey, maybe we should talk about this, uh, about uh, pop culture, the boomer culture, mm-hmm. taking things that were trivial and yep. should have been just a sort of uh, a diversion, yeah. you know, and said that they were really, really, really important. And I, the other thing, the other side of that is that I am without choice. I have no choice in this. I'm a person of a particular time, right. and a place. And so, so I have, when I drive down Laguna Canyon Road, oh, yeah. I really want to hear certain songs. Oh, look, I have and, my, I have my playlist. We all have our playlist on our iPhone or whatever. And I've got some playlists that, you know, bring back times and places. And when I, you know, bring back high school to me or, right. you know, college to me and, and that's fun. There's nothing wrong with kind of being a child of your time and place. And there's like a fun song is a fun song. And if it makes you happy right. to listen to it while you drive down, you know, the beach, you know, you know, along Pacific Coast Highway, whatever, you know, good, good for you. I mean, you know, turn up the right. radio and crank, crank it and, you know, put, take the top down right. on the Jeep and, and have a good time. There's nothing wrong with that. I think the, the problem was with the, the baby boomers it was the narcissism of believing this was civilizationally important. And right. it's that sort of pride of hubris, that, that sense of, of not just recognizing this is a fun song and I like it because right. it's a fun song and it's fun while I'm driving down the beach road to listen to, but it doesn't mean anything. And then you had all these people, you know, getting PhDs, like exploring the meaning of rock lyrics, you know, right. and trying to talk about right. how Dylan is like a new Dante or something, you know, kind of crazy like that. And, you know, it just isn't. And I think that part of it is, is it's okay to like things just because you like them, but right. you don't build a civilization on those things. You have to try to find those things that are sustainable and have lasting value. Like we talk about the true, the good, and the beautiful. I'll give you an example of something that, I mean, I've brought this up to people over the years, over and over and over again. And that's why I think people have these magical experiences going to old medieval cities in Europe. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I've been to lots of those places and I've taken people on trips and guided trips to those places and people, whether, you know, you're in France or Italy or, you know, in- England or whatever, you take them to some old medieval city in the city center and it's just this magical experience, right? They're walking through the twisty streets of Assisi or, you know, in Florence right. or wherever, you know, somewhere in England and, you know, the old town in York or whatnot, parts of France. And they're like, oh, this was just such a magical thing and a life changing thing. And they go back and, you know, go to a town like Orvieto or Siena in Tuscany. And they're always like, why? What was so cool about that? And here, here's, I have a, I have a you know, thing. And I think this is, goes to the issue of long-term sustainability is that those cities were designed on a human scale. Hmm. So in other words, they were designed before the automobile. And they were designed for people to walk through them. So the width of the streets and how you turned and all that. And the thing is, is that our cities are all designed for cars. They're wide, they're big, they're spread out. And and in that sense, they're efficient for a car culture, but they don't 
they don't have that human engagement. They aren't built to the scale of human life. Mm-hmm. And that's why in some sense they don't feel sustainable. Whereas when you go to a thousand-year-old city or a 1,200-year-old sure. city and you walk through its streets, you still feels special and relevant. And I think that that's where I'm kind of going with this and is that when we look at whether it's architecture, whether it's music, whether it's other kind of cultural elements, right? Entertainment, things that are built that are sustainable are things that nurture the human spirit at a very deep level and nurture the human spirit generation after generation after generation. And, and I do think that's the difference maybe between pop culture, which is popular, and folk culture, which is, is ingrained in, the, in, a, in a folk mm-hmm. over time. So the question is, how do we, as 21st century Americans, uh, in sort right. of a postmodern you know, context and within a Catholic context, build a sustainable Catholic civilization that will still nurture human life and souls a hundred, a thousand years from now. And what are the borders of that? What does that look like? What, how, be, how wide can that, can, that, uh, yeah. can that world be and what things can it include? Because when I think about Catholic culture, I just think specifically of, you know, cathedrals and, and mm-hmm. those things. But I, I, it's, it's bigger than that. Yeah, yeah. It involves more than that. And, you know, when you took the Dante class and we explored the Divine Comedy, you know, what were the things that, Dante wrote about? What are the things that, you know, again, whether it's, you know, you talk about the cathedrals, you talk about architecture or whatever that, that, you know, it's easy to look at, of course, because it's physical and it physically lasts, Mm -hmm. but it has to do with all of the arts and, and lifestyles, how we live. I mean, I think that's one of the things that Pope Francis, you know, has talked a lot about is, is the lifestyle that we've built for the 21st century, a sustainable lifestyle. Right. Is, this, is this something that actually nurtures the human soul? Yeah. And I think that pop culture, as it is today in America, does not nurture the human soul. It doesn't create human thriving. Right. I mean, look at our civilization. Look at the civilization the last 50, 60 years that were built on all of those bands and movies and pop culture. Right. Is this a thriving culture? Right. Is this, is, is this a, a, a culture that produces healthy human beings and thriving human beings. And, and I, I don't see how you, you look around and come to that conclusion. In fact, <clears throat> we were talking about the lyrics of rock songs and how I, I, you know, I, will, I will pick these apart in my head and I'll think, well, that's, that's really promoting something really, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's like the words of that song from a movie. I can't remember the movie or anything. Uh, let's do something cheap and superficial. Right. Let's, let's do something we might both regret. Right. Um, that's kind of what it feels like. The, the way the pop songs talk about love and, and right. commitment and stuff is they don't, it's just pretty shallow. It's just, in fact, it's enormously shallow. It's, you know, right. I, I don't, um, I, I no longer see much value in it. And I, and I listen to these, uh, once in a while at work, um, we'll play the a classic, the classic rock not right. the, the, it's the radio station, but it's not, it's the Pandora station. <laughs> um, and I think, oh my gosh, they're just talking about, okay, I'll just, I know that I saw, I saw old and cranky, you know, kids get off my lawn, but they're just talking about things that people shouldn't be doing and a horrible way to approach life and a flippant, right. you know, oh my gosh, you know, I'm sorry. I just, I don't know. I don't want to hear it anymore. Some of them I still like, but I don't well, know. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think you look at pop culture today and it looks like a, you know, there, I mean, the word decadence, right. but it's something that 
doesn't present anything that's true and good and beautiful. And again, that I, mean, I, I certainly don't want to say that like everything has to be some kind of like noble. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a place for happy, clappy right. songs that make you feel good as you're driving with the Jeep, the top yeah. down on the Jeep. But you don't build a civilization right. on that. That's not a foundation for something that is sustainable right. and sustains. And, and, and the other thing is a lot of our songs are not happy, clappy today. They're dark. Right. And this is a kind of a nihilistic culture. And, and that nihilism, it, it, it's, a, it's a belief in nothing that leads to nothing. A student, uh, a really wonderful young woman, Kristen, she's like 18 years old, and she was taking piano lessons from me. And she said, can I learn this song? She brought a song, and I said, sure. And she put this, this recording on. She had like, I think she brought like a CD with it. We popped it into my computer, and it was this horrible just this sound it was like like droning and i thought i don't know is my computer broken did she bring me right. the wrong thing and then this guy comes in singing you make all things beautiful <laughs> and i thought the emperor is wearing no clothes here okay right. i don't i don't I, I i like nothing about this this you know so there was a line in Shakespeare had a line, which was then picked up by the American novelist William Faulkner as a title from one of his books, The Sound and the Fury. But the original line in Shakespeare, uh, I think it's from King Lear, he says, life is, is but a sound and fury signifying nothing. Right. And, and the character who says that, I mean, Shakespeare isn't holding that up as like, that's a guy who's like lost his hope and has become right. nihilistic. Right. And yet it seems to me so much of our popular culture, whether yeah. it's, you know, movies or, or movies or television or, you know, a thousand other things that we do is just a sound and fury that signifies nothing and yeah. in the end sustains nothing. So I really think that, you know, as we talk about these segments in the, do these segments in the future, I want to start talking specifically about pop culture or, or cultural things, mu music, movies, whatever, right. and talking about them and asking, you know, what about this is good or not good? Yeah, and is this to. sustainable stuff or is this not sustainable? Is and, this a thing to build a life And on? let's look for things that are good. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's yeah. easy to criticize the things that aren't, but to find right. the things that are good. So we'll, we'll be talking about those in the future on these segments. Uh, so I'll be going through my Beach Boys, Boys catalog and trying to find the, you know, <laughs> find the ones that qualify. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Ed. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com dot com.